Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by eFish and Filson. Welcome, 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 and thank you for spending part of your day with us. Today's episode is super special because not only do we have a bona fide celebrity on the show, but we also have a guy who's I consider a friend. It's Andrew Zimmern. And Andrew Zimmern is the guy that you probably know from his very, very popular TV show, Bizarre Foods. He and I have hunted and fished together a couple times for that TV show, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And it occurred to me that when I wanted to talk about one of the most difficult topics of fish and seafood, which is to say to describe the flavors and the textures of fish and seafood and how varied they are, I could think of no better person to talk to than Andrew Zimmer, and he was very gracious enough to come on the show. And we have a really amazing, God, hour and 10 minute conversation about all kinds of things, bizarre and not so bizarre. And uh, I think you're just going to really love it. So without further ado, here we go and enjoy the show. Andrew Zimmern, it is so great to talk to you again. It has been years and years and years since we've shot doves and caught sharks and bat rays and done all kinds of fun things. And I am so happy to have you on the show. It's great to hear your voice, buddy. So, I mean, most people know you from Bizarre Foods, which had an enormously mm-hmm. long run. But what have you been doing lately? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, let's see now. About four or five. Oh, I'm going to say four years ago, maybe four and a half, I got a phone call. I was shooting uh, Zimmern List Orlando for Travel Channel. and You mean the ghost channel? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's now a ghost and paranormal channel called TRVL. They had a vowel movement uh, <laughs> and things changed. But I got a phone call and it was the head of the network and... She essentially said, camera's down. We wanted you to know, we're announcing it next week, that Travel Channel is no longer going to be food and travel. It's going to go ghost and paranormal. And I said, okay, thanks, and hung up the phone. And, you know, I was just in shock. It was a fascinating moment for me because I realized that all I really wanted as Bizarre Foods and Zimmern List and Delicious Destinations shows that I would, at the time, three of them I was making for Travel Channel because they wanted new Andrew Zimmern content on every Tuesday night of the year. I just wanted to know when the last episode of Bizarre Foods was going to go out. I felt that after 12 plus years of making that show and all that, I had sort of earned the right to at least know when the last one was so that I could put some Easter eggs in there that I could, you know, you don't want to break the fourth wall and sort of, you know, address the audience. I didn't want to do that, but I would have liked to have done some different things. And as it was, the last episode of Bizarre Foods was already in the can. And, you know, I had year plus left on my contract. So it was sort of an awkward thing. It turned out to be just fine. The very last episode ever aired of Bizarre Foods, and the last one that we shot was, and they're not always the same thing, was the Underground Railroad episode. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. And I'm as proud of that show. You know, if there was a way I needed to put a button on the end of the series and say, boy, we've come a long way from just eating bugs, it would have been that episode. Then the following year, 
<laughs> Zimmern List wins an Emmy. Another thing on, you know, this starts the what have I been doing lately? So I won an Emmy for a show that was no longer airing on a network that was no longer in existence <laughs> uh, during the first, second month of COVID, um, <laughs> which was, you know, so of course there's no public, well, there was no event for the Emmys that year. Right. And I was like, of course, God has a great sense of humor with someone who has as many ego problems as I do that, of course, I would win the Emmy this year. So there was that. And then we just started digging in, doing a lot of other cool things. Surviving COVID was hard. We lost a lot of our restaurants and our hospitality business, stuff like that. We obviously, the media world changed drastically. So some things were on, some things were off. We created some shows for a new network called Magnolia that Discovery was partnering with Chip and Joanna Gaines. So we were making shows both for myself and for other people. And one of those family dinner is still on. We start shooting our third season next month. And I've been, you know, running our little companies and making TV and uh, shot a show that I can now talk about that's on Netflix right now called Iron Chef. Oh, yeah. Uh, super, super pumped about that. So that and, will have actually started when, by the time this episode airs. Mm-hmm. So that's it's June 15th, right? That is correct. Yeah. And that's a blast. And what else do I have? Oh, and then the Substack, you know. The Substack thing is cool because I get to say what I want about that's spilled milk, whomever I want. Yeah, I thought that was a clever title. No one gets it, but I'm still sticking <laughs> with it. And then the other project that sort of came about was I have some local buddies up here that, you know, I went fishing with, actually my ice fishing friends. And one of them turned out to be one of the folks who runs the outdoor channel. And he said, why don't, you know, we should do something. And the least popular format of television these days by ratings are dump and stir shows. They used to be the highest rated, but food competition shows sort of knocked the stand and stir shows to the side. And I still miss Emerald. Emerald Live was a great show. It was a great show. Great show. And there are other great, I mean, it really depends, I think, on who it is, right? Do you want to tune into them? Because they're carrying the whole show, right? Yeah. So like people tuned into Bizarre Foods for 12 plus years, and I think they would have done it for another 12 plus if we had kept making them. But that's because there were always tons of other people and stories to tell and things to share and food to eat. I didn't have to carry it all myself. If you're standing and cooking in front of people for a half an hour, it's your show. They better want to like just watch you. And despite the fact that that has become a challenge for a lot of producers, we pitched them on a stand and stir show called Andrew Zimmern's Wild Game Kitchen that has been tested now all summer long on digital, on Outdoor Channel. You can see what are called episodes, but they're really just recipes, eight, nine minutes long. Gotcha. Um, and then they're being packaged as half hours for linear, uh, premieres beginning September 19th. And so for everyone, and, and I'm assuming all your listeners are outdoor channel people one way or another, check it out. They'll be able to watch them at outdoorchannel.com or on linear. If outdoor channel is part of your bundle on your I guess, on what we're still calling televisions. Are we still calling them televisions? For, for at least oh, eight more months. On your, your monitors, <laughs> on 
on your monitors, however you're watching. And that's been just fantastic. It's just a chance for me. And you were someone very, very important in my own personal sort of growth when it came to cooking what I hunt, catch, kill out in the wild, forage. I'm not sure you remember it, but I think it was when we were in the, I forget, we were one part of San Francisco Bay. Yes, uh, this is the sharks and, and we were fishing. Yep, yep. And you gave me, you used some in the show, but you gave me a small jar of, a, I think it was seaweed salt that you had made. Yes, which mm-hmm. is hilarious. That stuff is now being marketed as green salt, and you can see ads for it all over the place. Correct. <laughs> if you only knew then what we know now. But, you know, I sort of looked at that and, you know, I mean, we had shot TV and we had had the chance to cook together before. But there was something about the seaweed salt that made me say to myself, you know something, people really are, not only do they need to know that when grandma took grandpa's pheasant and chopped it up and threw it in the crock pot with two cans of cream of mushroom soup and cooked it for eight hours, it's, it's not that, you know, I don't want to yuck on someone else's yum because there are people That's out there for whom- yuck. For whom that is, well, there are people out there for whom, and I know them all because they live in Minnesota. Yes, they do. For whom that is the comfort food of their childhood. And is it, to my mind, a less interesting way to eat pheasant? Darn right it is. And that I will defend to the death. But if some people like it, God bless them. But they need to be presented with more options. You've done that brilliantly in your books and in all the other mediums in which media, in which people, you know, find Hank Shaw info. But, you know, I'm like, I have stuff to contribute to that genre. I like to cook certain things and I don't want people to think their only option is a crock pot. And so I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. And so we started uh, doing that. We've shot two quote unquote seasons of it or pods of shows. We're going to do a third and a fourth in the early fall, and then they're just going to start rolling them all out sequentially starting September 19th. And it's a blast. It's really cool. I was actually looking at pictures the other day of my pheasant dish and thinking about defrosting. I have one and a half birds still sitting from last fall in my freezer in the garage. And, you know, Minnesota, it's a cold, rainy day out, and I knew I was talking to you, so it's probably why I was thinking about it. And, you know, I just did a very simple recipe where, you know, I quartered the birds and removed some of the backbone and other bones and just pan seared them and then deglazed the pan with uh, Armagnac and apple cider and diced apples and apple cider vinegar and let the breasts just cook in there for a couple of minutes, pull them out, let the legs and thighs cook in there for about another 20, 30 minutes until they're tender, put the breasts back in. There's some shallots and, you know, mm-hmm. tablespoon or two of brown sugar in there. And then I add some cream and some dried currants. And it's, it's, it's pretty much classic French, yeah, I was you know, say, Normandy, if you, if, if you Google, Normandy farmhouse cooking. Google pheasant with apples, you'll find almost that exact recipe on my site. <laughs> and it's a classic. Right? It is. It's like chicken and, Normandy. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't get any more classic. And the, 
you and I have the same outlook, I think. We come from the same point of view with food. I don't want somebody doing decoupage on top of their birds at the duck you know, lodge. That's not why we do what we do. I'd rather sit in front of the fireplace and veg out. I'd rather get up early in the morning and go for a, you know, a walk if I'm not, you know, heading into the duck blind. But there are so many interests. I, I mean, look, you get this all the time too. There's so many people who are like, well, I just breast my geese out. And I'm like, you mean you don't take the legs and thighs and braise them and do a curry with them or confit them or any one of a hundred other things you can do mm-hmm. with beautiful goose uh, dark quarters? And it's they don't have to be complex recipes. And so it's a blast. It's fun. So that's what I've been up to lately. Well, cool. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. Are you ready for summer? eFish delivers only in-season, never-frozen, wild, American-caught seafood right to your doorstep. How do they do that? eFish doesn't have a warehouse full of fish. Instead, their Harvester Direct Seafood ships your order directly to you from the source. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place your order. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they've put harvesters and our oceans first. What does that mean? Small boat operations, hook and line caught fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. At eFish, they want you to see food confidently. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get $15 off your first order with my special coupon code, HuntGatherTalk. That coupon code is HuntGatherTalk. Once again, that's e-fish.com. Let's talk fish because this is a fish and seafood season. And the reason I wanted you to have on, not only because we haven't talked to you forever, and I did want to figure out what's Andrew doing these days, <laughs> but, but it's also like I can't think of two other people who have eaten or, or tried as many types of fish and seafood as the two of us. I mean, I tallied it up before Hook, Line, and Supper came out, and I'm up to, I'm over 300 different species. Wowza. And I'm sure you're beyond that. And the thing that I wanted to really talk about is why is it so hard for people to discuss taste and flavor? People have a very difficult time describing the taste of fish and seafood in a way that is harder for people to wrap their mind around than it is for people to discuss the taste of, say, poultry or red meats. And, sure. and I think between the two of us, we've really covered an enormous range of tastes and textures of all different kinds of fish and seafood. And I kind of wanted to just run with that for a little bit. Well, I've got several reasons why I think that is, and then we can break them down deeper, however you like. The first reason, I believe, is that there's no accepted nomenclature for it that exists, right? The way there are with certain other foods, right? And just the easiest one being wine talk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's 75 adjectives that, you know, wine geeks, you know, notes of leather and current and, you know, old barn. And any port drinker will know what that port then tastes like, right? So we don't have an accepted nomenclature of it. I think part of that reason is reason number two, animals, for the most part, taste of 
uh, what they eat and where they live. And I think that not only have people not eaten a lot of seafood, which we'll get to in a second, especially in terms of varieties of it, but they have a very hard time describing some of the flavors of things that other sea creatures eat. And remember, there's whole swaths of seafood that, I mean, how do you describe flavors of certain types of bivalves? There is some language now around oyster eating, right? Mm -hmm. You know, copper and celery and river rock and, you know, things like that, because it's oysters from, you know, 200 yards away from another oyster bed will actually taste different. There was a need for oystermen and for oyster wholesalers and oyster retailers to tell their customers what the difference was between oysters that sat in one estuary with another that was a couple hundred yards away. And there was a big flavor difference. And let's face it, oysters are the wine of the seafood world. Uh, 100%. And, you know, for the most part, clams taste the same. You'd be hard pressed to put a little neck clam or a cherry stone from Rhode Island next to one from Maine and have someone tell you where they were from or what the difference was. But there are many people who can do that with oysters. I can absolutely do it, not between Maine and Rhode Island, but I can do it between Rhode Island and North Carolina. Oh, for sure. For sure. And there are huge differences between East Coast and West Coast or West Coast and Gulf, right? Just take Um, razor clams, Western razors and Eastern razors. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I consider razors to be an entirely different category, you know, when it comes to flavor. But then the other, and I think this is possibly the biggest reason, and let's just talk about our primary audience, you know, of national listeners here. In America, we still eat the same five or six sea creatures over and over and over and over again. Those five or six sea creatures have, for the most part, become incredibly commoditized. I mean, insanely commoditized. And so for most people, because of the limited number of seafood that they eat, right, they can't describe the nuances of flavors between species because they're only eating the same three or four, you know, shrimp, salmon, halibut, you know, cod. I mean, you know, there's five or six fish that represent 90% of what most Americans eat. And so the issue really becomes we have people here in this country who might love to eat fish, but they can't describe to you what their salmon dish tasted like last night, but they can tell you what the eight beers in their refrigerator in the garage all taste like and why they're different Hmm. because they're actually tasting a lot of different beer because they happen to like beer, right? And they're a member of the Beer of the Month Club where they've got local breweries and tap rooms that are hosting events and they learn the language and they taste the different things. People just don't have the opportunity to do it. And culturally in America, we're eating the same fish over and over and over again. And as those species have become commoditized, they've lost a lot of their nuance of flavor. A short, funny story, and then you can pick which pile we're going (laughs) to sift through first. Sunday night, and we're recording this on a Tuesday, I had some friends over to the house and I poach baked with fennel and lemon and dill and a little bit of white wine, a side of Copper River King that I had gotten. I eat wild salmon on the occasions that I catch some or somebody sends me something from the first run and I just absolutely delight in it. And 
all of my friends, I didn't realize it. And by the way, you know, it's like a 10 pound filet, right? Right. So it's just, it's just a monster. And eight people were at the table, including myself. And seven of them were like, my gosh, the taste and the texture of this is so unusual. Now, to me, it was like seeing, tasting an old friend coming home. You know, it was a lot firmer. Luckily, I had, uh, I've cooked enough of them so that it wasn't overcooked, which can make that fish almost hard. Yeah. And unpleasant. So it was cooked just right. And I used a technique that I really love for that fish. And especially one for, you know, I trimmed away the belly and the scraps, things like that, and really just had a rectangle of top loin plus a piece of the belly that extended down, but not the lower belly. And, you know, I realized these people have been eating so much farm salmon, which I'm a big proponent of aquaculture. I think we need to eat wild and aquaculture and also eat food from, you know, nutraceutical food from a can every once in a while. If we want to repair our food system, I think there's 12 ways to do it, not one answer to everything. But I like to eat wild fish and I like to eat farm fish. And I realized I go out of my way to eat wild fish. And I'm also in places where I'm eating wild fish and my friends aren't, but they love salmon. And they saw this wild fish as the outlier flavor texture. And I was fascinated at that. I just, I was almost in shock, almost in shock. I said, this is what a wild fish tastes like. Well, no, that's what a Copper King spring run salmon tastes like. Well, that's true. That's true. And that is different. So it's a great place to start because this is an area where there is a pretty considerable amount of of public knowledge of texture and flavor differences. And that is, that's salmonids in general. Yep. So, you know, the salmonids, for those of you out there who don't know, are all of the salmon, all of the trout, all of the char, all of the whitefish, and all of the grayling. And so all of those fish are genetically related, and they're all relatively soft fish with a high oil content. And that oil content is, you know, can be as low as certain trout are very low, and pink salmon are pretty low, to all the way to there's a particular strain of lake trout that lives in Lake Superior that can be 50% fat by weight, which is unreal. Like you can it set is, them on fire. It <laughs> is. I've, I've done that. I've also had <laughs> friends do that and call me, why is my fish on fire? I've had, <laughs> I've had people have so much fat drip into us when they tried to be smoking it, that it leaks so much fat pooled up in the bottom of their like electric, you know, oh, yeah. little, little smoky smoker that it set the smoker on fire or shorted it out. And I was like, oh my gosh. But yeah. And of course, I live in Minnesota, so that fish is not that far away from me. Exactly. So I think, especially like you talk to anybody from about Northern California to the, you know, really the Arctic Circle in in my part of the world. And there are strong and set and firm opinions about not only the different species of wild salmon, but the runs. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, here where I live in Sacramento, we can't fish them anymore, but we could fish them when I first moved here because they're, they're just numbers are not very good anymore. But when you could fish them, the spring run Sacramento King salmon, and this is true in the Columbia as well. And it's, also, it's true in really every single case. When you have a spring run salmon of whatever species it is, and it's typically Kings, but not always, that particular fish's survival strategy is to get incredibly fat, usually on krill out in the mm-hmm. ocean, 
And then they're going to hang and they're going to go into the river early and they find the best spot to build a red and they defend that spot all summer long. And so then when the unwashed masses show up in November <laughs> or December, they're already there and they've got the best spot. That's right. And so if you catch them at the river mouth, or even if you catch them in the river in like June or July, they're going to be twice as fatty as a fall run fish. And some of the fall and their diet's fish, different. Yes, their diet's different. So here, also here in California, those of us who catch king salmon, and it's a big deal here, people who catch king salmon, you want to catch at least a few fish in the beginning of the season, which is, we're now sort of transitioning to the middle of the season. But if you catch some fish in the beginning of the season, chances are they're going to be krill fish. And we know this, like people know it, like this is not, it's esoteric only in the fact that most Californians don't know it, but people who catch salmon certainly know it. So. You know, I would argue that the single greatest salmonid in the world is a spring-run Yukon king. I would agree with you. And the reason why Yukon is because the other thing that determines fat content is the length of the run. You got it. And most people don't understand that because these factors are so fast-moving, seasonality, time of, you know, all that kind of stuff, what their diet is. Chefs, unless you know uh, they're getting their fish from a purveyor who has access to these things, they feature it for a couple of weeks. The guests are not going to get a chance to do comparative tastings or eat it enough times during the year. And most restaurants want a consistent product, so they're not buying. And it's impossible to have that product year round. Exactly. Um, so people don't get a chance to understand the difference by tasting it, and then two weeks later tasting what a a wild fish tastes like from the same part of the world even. Yeah. I mean, another great example is bluefish on the East Coast. Oh God, my favorite. Well, I grew up on it. Most so people dislike it. Are you originally from New York or Jersey? Can't remember. New York. New York. Okay. Yeah, I'm from Jersey. So our bluefish are real different from bluefish in the Gulf because bluefish in the Gulf are typically not getting big and fat on Manhattan. And they're getting fat on other things. And so they're lighter in color and a little bit less oily than the big bunker eaten bluefish that you and I used to catch. You mean monster blues. Oh my God. I caught a 25 pound bluefish <laughs> in the middle of the night once. It was just, it was like a Nantucket sleigh ride. <laughs> That's a big ass bluefish. Too. My, it is. My childhood was spent with my father. We were the surf casting for striped bass. Jones uh, Beach? No, out in Long Island on the South Fork. Uh, oh, all the way out. Okay. He... You know, and this is during the 60s when I was six, seven, eight years old. And if it was going to be cloudy that weekend, we drove out to Montauk, went on a boat and trolled for bluefish. And sometimes you caught something else. But my gosh, was that the and my father loved smoking the bluefish, then mm -hmm. making the, you know, blue homemade bluefish pate, yeah. cleaning the bluefish, which was a must to in my father's mind to lower some of the what a lot of people thought of were off-putting flavors. And then he had, he used a lot of Portuguese and Spanish style recipes mm. to serve to guests because he would have these big dinner parties at night. And so that included things like cooking them in parchment with lots of herbs and a splash of wine and olive oil and tomato and garlic and onion and a pinch of saffron. And because the bluefish does have a stronger taste and it stands up to those things very well, Was whereas why bother doing that to halibut or flounder, right? 
Exactly. And actually, that's a good segue too. Let's talk about these, what I call gray fish. So, mm-hmm. so I basically separate all fish into three categories in hook, line, and supper into white fish, lean and, and fatty, gray fish, mm-hmm. which are all fatty to some extent, and then the, the orange fish, which are the salmonids. So we're talking herring and anchovies and sardines and mackerel and bluefish and tuna and jacks. I could just stay here with you all day long, I think right a, there with the gray fish. Yeah, I think there's a few others that I'm missing, but uh, nothing I'd rather eat than the first run of smaller mackerel that get pushed in by all the big predators when I'm up in Maine at times during the summer. The first sardines of the year, the first herring of the year, if you're lucky enough to be in a country like California. Holland. <laughs> We get them in that. We get them in San Francisco Bay in January. But you know how to prepare. You know they will literally gut them, take the heads off, skin them, leave them on the center bone, and brine them for ten to fourteen hours, and sell them as is, pulled out of the brine. They'll they'll have them in the buckets, and they'll pull them out and serve them to you in little paper boats on the streets of Amsterdam. That's cool. With minced onions and capers on them in a wedge of lemon. And that's it. And most people, including myself, the first one you eat unadorned, you just lower it in your mouth and pull out that bone because it comes right off. And it's just so delightfully fatty and sweet and just pulls away as if it's been cooked. And it's not the brine that's doing that. It's just the fat content because it hasn't gone into the lean, warmer water months there as they come out of the North Sea. And oh my gosh, it's just, I love herring, love sardines, love mackerel, roasted in an open fire situation. There's nothing that I enjoy more. I would agree with you. I think every chef listening to this would probably agree with both of us. I think there is a strong divide between habitual eaters of fish. And I'm Mm -hmm. talking about people with ecumenical tastes like you and me. I mean, not somebody who eats, oh yeah, I eat fish every week, but it's always perch or walleye. Mm -hmm. If you've had a lots and lots of different kinds of fish, virtually all of us have at least one so-called gray fish that we're like, yeah, it's really, really, really good. But most of the people listening to this will wrinkle their nose at fish like that we're talking about. Yeah. And I, I have, have some ideas. Yeah, I want to hear your theory first. Hey, everybody. I wanted you to know that this podcast, Hunt, Gather, Talk, the season three, is a companion to my latest cookbook, which is Hook, Line, and Supper. Hook, Line, and Supper is probably the only fish and seafood cookbook you're ever going to need. It is a comprehensively written, lushly illustrated book that covers both freshwater and salt. And it is kind of the crowning achievement of what I've done in terms of all of my cookbooks over the years, because I have been fishing for decades and decades and decades, and I have fished all over the country, and I have eaten basically anything that lives in the water. And you are going to find that expertise in Hook, Line, and Supper. I wanted to give you guys, as listeners of my podcast, a special offer. If you go to my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, you can get to it at huntgathercook.com, and you go to the Buy the Book section, and you buy a copy of not just Hook, Line, and Supper, but any of the books on that website, you will get 20% off your checkout by using the coupon code HUNTGATHERTALK. So once again, if you are interested in buying the cookbook that underlies this podcast, go to my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, that is huntgathercook.com, and go to the buy the book section and use the coupon code Hunt 
gather talk. And that was give you 20% off your order. One more thing. If you buy three books or more, I will upgrade your shipping to UPS from Media Mail, which will get it to you much, much faster. Again, the coupon code is HuntGatherTalk on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Uh, it's HuntGatherCook.com. And thank you for listening. Here in the Midwest, I live in Minnesota, transplanted from New York. I'm 60. I spent the first 30 years of my life in New York and the last 30 years of my life here in Minnesota. And I can't tell you how many people eat fish in my house and because I serve it a lot and they're shocked. And when I, some people would say interrogate, I consider it polite conversation. <laughs> um, it goes back to a distaste they have from fish that sat around for a couple of days before grandpa froze it in a block of milk in the chest freezer. Because for some reason, that's just what they did, right? So fish at less than peak, stored improperly, not necessarily cleaned the right way, gets frozen and then gets defrosted. And of course, it's going to have some off-putting flavors, having nothing to do with the fish itself, but in fact, having to do with the age and the handling prior to it going into the freezer. And a lot of Kids in the Midwest grow up saying, oh, yeah, uh, don't like it. Don't like it. I'm not a big fish person, they'll say. And then I'll serve them something that will be like, my God, why well, I had no idea. So I think that's one reason. The other thing is that when you talk about those gray fish and also a lot of the salmonids, you are talking about fish that have a fat content that translates to a certain type of flavor that either is resolved by cookery or is eaten for that kind of enjoyment, right? I like eating eel. Most people only eat eel at the sushi bar where it's been steamed for several hours, then broiled or grilled, and then basted with a sweet and salty sauce that people become addicted to because it's delicious. And they say, oh, I love eel. But then if you actually catch an eel, take it out of its skin, cut it up into, you know, four inch lengths and grill it until it's ready to come off the bone and just serve it with, you know, a little bit of seasoning on it or brushed with lemon and butter. They look at you and they're like, my God, that is, there's so much fat there. And the flavor is, they say strong, but what it really is, is it has a pronounced flavor. Those same people will eat aged beef. I'm talking about 60 day old beef mm -hmm. that is starting to get the that blue cheese beautiful flavor. little antique finish antique. Of, of, of cheese. It is, it is, I think it's the best expression of beef flavor that you can have, right? Before it becomes super cheesy, which I love, by the way. And they'll eat that beef and they love it and they appreciate it. But even a milder flavor present in a fish immediately triggers a thought in their head that there's something bad with it. For some reason, and this is my last thought, people think that some of those stronger flavors in fish equates into bad. It's why people won't, same thing with the different textures of, you know, whelks and other sea creatures that have a strong aroma. I wouldn't say the flavor of certain sea snails are very, very strong, but I would say that their aroma does. And a lot of people are put off by that. And it's why kids growing up in New Jersey, friends of mine are like, oh, I love whelks because their grandparents made Scungili salads yeah. and, you know, put oil and vinegar, oregano and onions and diced tomato. And they made that classic Italian 
Well, the Greeks make it, the Portuguese make it, the Spanish make it, but it's that classic salad that has a lot of other flavors in there, let's just say. And designed, by the way, so that you're not getting that flavor that I love when I'm in Japan or Korea or China, or even when I do it myself and I see whelks or other sea snails in fish markets in areas where people are taking them out of the water and I buy them and you know, you just roast them over an open fire, just perch them the right way and let them simmer in their own shells and serve them with a bunch of toothpicks and let people just dip them in butter. There's nothing that I like better, but you're going to get a lot of aroma of those sea snails. That is a definite. So you've got two things that we're working on here. One is aroma and the other is texture. Mm-hmm. So I do think that because people like it or not, I mean, all of us, you know, you can conjure in your head right now, everybody listening to this, nasty, fishy smell. Mm. And nasty fishy smell, especially saltwater fish, because they have they contain different substances than, than uh, freshwater fish. A bad saltwater fish will always smell worse than a bad freshwater fish. <laughs> always. Uh, and, and yeah, and, it, it 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 ammoniates. Yeah, there's oh god, I wish I could remember. You know, where's Harold when you need him? Harold McPhee or McGee? Harold McGee. Yep. He described it's a particular molecule that's in saltwater fish mm-hmm. that does not exist that degenerates into a nasty smell. Yep. So I think everybody has smelled that. Everybody has walked it. So if you walked into a butcher shop and it smelled like rotting meat, you'd walk away. But everybody has walked into a fish market where it smells like stinky fish. That's right. I don't and quite most, understand. And, and most often, from I have found spending a lot of time in fish markets, probably more than most people. That ultimately comes down to a lot of old shellfish. Um, mm-hmm. Dude, it's, oh. it, it's actually not, you oh. know, I, I've wanted to know <laughs> what is it? What is it? I need to know. And it's actually not the fin fish, saltwater or freshwater that's been the biggest problem. It's actually, you know, all the mollusks and bivalves and, you know, crabs and, lobster and shrimp species of all different types and prawns and whatever cases that they're around where bits and pieces of them fall away. It just doesn't get cleaned and they have an even stronger aroma and an even more pronounced ammonia component to it when they degenerate and people get freaked out. I just associate that with good volume. To me, it's good volume. Although I did have Someone sent me a uh, a bad batch of uh, soft shell crabs. The like other on day. purpose? No, 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 by accident. The wrong box. <laughs> Eat this bizarre know. foods guy. <laughs> you know they're 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 trying to send me the you know a box of live primes and a box of dead primes from the week before it hadn't been rotated through and it just someone picked the box up and you know threw it into the thing and sent it to me. Uh, I opened it up and immediately called the person and said, "Hey, I know I got the wrong box." And they sent me a new one, but it had been a long time since I, since I had smelled, you know, crabs that had gone bad and boy, oh boy, is that was not a pleasant uh, aroma at all. You are not kidding. So right around when this airs are some of the lowest tides of the year. So I will obviously be on the clam flats digging and every now and again, you will dig up a recently deceased clam. Yeah. And and you dig this thing out of the bowels of the earth and it is as if like it's as if God farted in your face. It's the worst. Yeah, it's horrific. It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrific. Great. My dad, you know, and this was before anyone called it foraging. We just called it what it was, you know, we went, gathering. 
we clammed, you know, and we're, you would drive out to the bays at low tide and, you know, we'd bring a couple inflatable rings with us with baskets. And, you know, we had clam rakes that we kept in the outdoor shower uh, so that we could throw them in the station wagon. And I loved it because it meant that we were eating them for the next 24 hours. And, you know, my dad was a great clam opener. So I knew that, you know, and I was young and he didn't want me to hurt myself. So he would teach me bit by bit. Came in pretty handy when I finally got my first uh, job in a kitchen when I was 14 because uh, I could open shellfish. All right, I got to uh, stop you. Are you, a, are you a hinge clam shucker or are you a, a front oh, clam shucker? Oh, no, I go right in the front. I'm a hinge guy. And, you know, it's just how I learned. And I'm also a cherry stone. I like a larger clam. And I just remember, you know, pulling them up and pulling them up. And the, as a young kid, once that bad one hits, you're like, God, we're leaving. Right. And, you know, <laughs> oh, no, we throw it back. We're going, you know, this. And, and then he has to teach you about feeling them all for weight and, you know, how to figure out the dead ones. And I mean, oh, my God, it was just such a great lesson. Plants yeah, I mean, feel was, like money to me. Oh, well, they have been historically, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and in, in, in my own history. So I made a whole bunch of money digging clams professionally when I was in college in Long Island. I had no idea. Yeah. In Rhode Island, with something that I did not know until I went and told that story there, every single local state resident, if you have a home in the state of Rhode Island, you get a certain number of pounds per week that you can take for free anywhere out of the water. <laughs> Rhode Island, fun trivia fact, has more miles of coastline than California. Yeah. Same with Maine because they're all, it's just fingers. If yeah, you look on a microscope, them, it's just, you know, it's a zigzag dragon's tooth coastline. It is quite something. And I, God, I love clams, but when there's a bad one, boy, <laughs> oh boy. Same with mussels. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Same, but at least you know it. Yeah, because at they, they least, like at, gate. At least you know it, you know, and you can smell it. And these are filter feeders, right? So I think, you know, part of those aromas, when things go bad with them, uh, you are smelling not just their systems, but you are smelling the foods that they eat that have a very unique aroma, mm -hmm. that rotting smell of sea vegetables detritus, whatever goes through those animals can be really hellacious, absolutely hellacious. So the other piece to this that we're you've mentioned before is texture. Mm -hmm. And with, in fact, the only fish I can think of, eh, maybe a couple of fish that I can think of that, that are exceptions to this, but for the most part, every fish, fin fish that we eat has a texture softer than that of pork or beef. Yes. And I mean, gar is an exception. Gar basically taste like a pork chop. And there are a couple others like, you know, fully cooked marlin is pretty firm. Mm -hmm. Sturgeon's pretty firm. Yeah, fully cooked swordfish is yep. pretty firm. You know, I mean, not if you get a, a paper thin slice like a paillard in some restaurant. But, you know, if you have a inch and a half thick swordfish steak that is cooked past medium, it's going to be very firm. Yeah. I just caught a, a five and a half foot gar the other day. And uh, I saw the picture. Yeah. <laughs> a big old gator. Yeah. And you were very happy. That thing is interestingly challenging. And in terms of the tech, I wanted to bring it up in texture wise is because other than the tail section of a big ass tuna or sword, this thing had the strongest connective tissue 
of any fish that I've ever encountered to the point where I understand why you make gar balls out of big alligator gars in Louisiana. Like yep. it was, I've caught similarly sized sturgeon that did. By not the way, for a lot of listeners who may not know what that is, the ground. <laughs> yes. <ball laughs> yes. It's a, it's a, where you grind them and see. It's like a Louisiana filter fish. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But you know something that is, you know, and it is because of that connective tissue. And for those that are listening that may not understand with really large, you know, know, a big tuna that has a lot of connective tissue down at the tail to move or towards the tail to move the tail so vigorously, it's a lot of connective tissue. And that is very, very tough. And it's why, you know, flatfish are, especially smaller ones, are so delicate and melt in your mouth. And it's, simply is, you know, just like on a hoofed animal, the working cuts versus the luxury cuts. The working Mm -hmm. cuts of an animal require longer cooking at a lower temperature to make them tender. And it's the same thing with some of those tougher, bigger fish. I will say I do like the firmness of monkfish. And I think that the popularity of monkfish over the last 25 years in American seafood markets, especially on the coast where they're trying to give people variety and push variety has really helped people understand that not everything is a, you know, you look at old recipe books, everything is flaky fillets, right? Well, a monkfish doesn't have a flaky fillet anywhere near it. And yet it's one of the most delicious fish. I learned one way to prepare it in Greece. I've never gone back to preparing it any other way since simply because I loved it so much. It is very uniquely textured and there is more variety of texture. I mean, you look at something like a, uh, a black cod, uh, mm-hmm. that, fish, yeah. you know, if you cooked a filet and dropped it from a height of six inches onto a plate, would, it'll fall would apart <laughs> completely disintegrate. It's so, so, so tender right up to something like monk. We don't even have to get into some of those grilled specialty fish, you know, that might be super extra firm. And I think the popularity of Japanese restaurants, especially ones that serve raw fish, has expanded people's notions about textures of different parts of a fish because they've had the opportunity to taste different parts of a tuna. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Filson. Filson Sporting Goods has for 125 years, their uncompromising commitment to quality has defined their authenticity. They have built trust within the community. To become more than just a clothing brand, they are stewards of the American outdoor tradition. I have worn their gear for more than 25 years. I've worn it fishing, hunting, and even in just regular foul weather. I am almost always wearing a Filson lightweight rain jacket when uh, I'm fishing in rainy weather because it is at the same time light and waterproof. I love it to death and you should check it out too. Now back to the show. What is the most off-putting texture and or flavor of fish and seafood that you've encountered? All of the rotted and fermented fish that I've eaten uh, over the world. Some of it's just incredibly pleasant. Now, you, you know, look, anything that's pickled is essentially you're curing it, but it's also an experimentation in controlled rotting, right? Cheese is an exercise in controlled spoilage. I mean, just so everyone is thinking about it the right way. Uh, fruit, when it's on a bush or tree, is ripening. The minute you pull it and let it, what we think of as ripening on our counter, it's actually just rotting and it changes its flavor and texture. And around the world, cultures far and wide on every continent, in every culture, including our own, let certain foods rot, sometimes to the point where 
they are inedible and eating them would kill you. But then eventually the bad bacteria is eaten by the good bacteria and you can eat it again. And it's these foods are highly prized for the methodology behind the rotting that creates nuances of flavor and texture. Stinkheads. I was going to say stinkheads are are one of them. Uh, Hakarl in Iceland. I'm blanking on the Korean name for the fermented skate wing, which is probably the worst. Uh, Well, it's on par with the Hakarl, but I'm going to say it's worse only because I actually kind of liked the Hakarl after a while, served on buttered bread. Uh, Hakarl is a Greenlandic Ice shark. shark, yeah. Yeah, that is uh, buried for 60 days in the ground, then cleaned, washed, hung to dry for another 30 days, then portioned into football sized chubs and then air dried. And uh, it's just, it's got the texture of wax and the flavor of ammonia detergent. Um, but awesome. <laughs> the, the skate species that are used in Korea and eaten with pickled vegetables and shizo or betel leaves uh, wrapped around them is an animal that's also uremic. It pees through its skin. So they let these things just rot for two days because they're, the fillets of obviously of skate are very thin, small skate. And uh, they let them sit at room temperature. In fact, the ideal place uh, in a lot of recipes to make it yourself at home is to put it the fillets in a pot and just set them on the back of your stove where it's nice and warm, you know, in 80 degrees all day long. And uh, 48 hours later to check it and cut it into little squares and eat it. It's just absolutely horrifying. Again, very, very, very soft, but it's the, um, this, the ammonia stink that gets me. It actually creates a gag reflex for most Westerners uh, that's very difficult to get past. People who live in these countries, whether it's, you know, Iceland or Asia, certain parts of Asia, when they're little kids, they don't get a gag reflex from it because that flavor and aroma is around them. They've eaten it their whole lives. And it's interesting because we're also sushi obsessed in this country. And the origins of of sushi, the very first fish that was used was was actually fermented. fermented in cooked rice for years at a time. And these were, you know, very small fish on the shores of Lake Biwa. And I've gone and visited these 800-year-old purveyors of this fine product that's so highly prized. And it's rotted for five, six, eight, ten years, the longer the better. And then it's hung out to dry, wiped of the spoiled rice that then is clinging to it, and cleaned and then dried. And you can buy this product. But the origins, how it hooks up with the sushi culture is that it was then eaten on vinegared rice as a way to cut through the stink. And then ultimately the vinegar rice stuck around and other fish went on top of it. And someone said, wow, the fresh fish tastes kind of nicer than these teeny little freshwater goodies. So, yeah, I've definitely seen for me, I haven't traveled as much as you have, but the stink heads were pretty rough. I think this isn't really a fish, but I had some like two-year-old seal oil that was pretty rough. I really liked the yeah, fresh, well, all of, the fresh seal oil was good, but oh, but it's delicious! And, and look, I've, I mean, whether it's walrus seal, whale sea lion, I mean, I've eaten all of their oils and fat with different indigenous people that have tags that they're able to harvest these animals, yeah. and they're delicious, plain or cooked. 
They're delicious rendered. They're delicious raw. I just absolutely love it. Now, you can't eat a lot of it because it can cause you stomach problems if you're not used to it, but it's delicious. However, when you start getting into the fermented oils and fermented whale oil being the one that caused me a lot of problems when I ate it with some coastal tribal peoples in Alaska was it gives you an instant fever. It raises your body. Your body has such an incredible reaction to the microtoxins that are in it that your body temperature will go for me, 98 degrees is my norm to about 102, almost within minutes. Uh, And so that quick bolt in temperature makes you feel like you've just gotten hit over the head with the flu. And they have to carry you outside and strip your clothes off and roll you in the snow to try to drop your body temperature uh, down again. It's the only way to get you to feel like you're not going to die. But I did like the flavor of it. And they dip dried whitefish into it, which is quite delicious. But when the director is saying to you, oh, let's get that shot from another angle. Can you dip that? Can you get more oil on there? And the grandma in the house is trying to explain to them that I shouldn't eat that much of it. And Chris, our director in the field for that episode, who I think you may have met a couple of times, Hank, Chris was ignoring. He thought that for her, it was like a precious commodity because there was just a little small bowl of it, of the oil. She had jugs and jugs and jugs of it, right? Because she had to have it last all winter long. She was saying, no, he shouldn't eat a lot of it because if he eats too much, more than like a half a teaspoon total, he's going to not feel well. He thought she was being stingy. And he needed to, quote unquote, get the right shot. So he wanted to be really dunking it in there. It was hysterical. Wow. Quite that's funny. I have never had anything like that. I think the, the one fun thing about your friend, Chris, is uh, so when we were in the San Francisco Bay for that episode, he demanded that we had sport stuntfish, right? So yeah. in so case we like, don't catch anything. And I'm like, dude, this is leopard sharks. We're never in the history of fishing have we not caught leopard sharks. He's like, we, if we don't have them, we're not, we're not doing the shoot. So I'm like, all right, God damn it. So, you know, I live like two hours away from where we were shooting. Yeah. So the next day I drove out, or the day before I drove out with my friend Joe, and Joe was on the boat too. Yep. And so we took the skip out and we went to where we were going to fish and I threw a line out. And by the time Joe's line had hit the bottom, we'd had a fir- our first shark. And then... Like eight seconds later, he caught a second shark. So we had two sharks in the boat after like, no exaggeration, six or seven minutes of fishing. Yep. And so we got them on ice and we went back home. And then it was by this time, you know, Bay Area traffic is horrendous. So we slept on the boat after drinking a bunch of beer and eating at an Italian place in Emeryville that night. And the next thing I know is RJ, the captain, is banging on the boat like, wakey, wakey, like, got the goddamn sharks? Like, yeah, I got Andrew sharks. <laughs> <laughs> And so we, you guys show up and we go out to fish. And I, and I don't know if you remember that, but you caught a shark within like five minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we, what most people don't understand is that when you are, you know, off the coast of southern Chile in what is their summertime, our winter, and you have to catch this fish to complete the story, to put the button on the end of the story, and it doesn't happen, there's no story. And so the producers and directors have been beaten up so much by production heads and showrunners and all the rest that they're battle scarred. And so you have to have one already in possession because what happens if you don't catch one? And I've taken crews out. I've been the guy in your position 
and said, oh, no, 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 no. It's impossible not to catch a blank out here, you know? And it's like, no, we need to have, I mean, I took a crew out for a show we were making years ago to catch, you know, crappie and bluegill and, you know, Mm -hmm. little panfish for part of a VFW story, fish fry story for the, what was going to be, I think the pilot for Zimmern List. And, you know, because I live here, you know, and go out, I called a friend and he had the boat and, you know, off we go. And they were paralyzed, paralyzed with fear about not getting fish. And I had to explain to them, no, seriously, you throw a piece of corn on creamed corn on a hook and you put it out into the water under any dock on this entire body of water and you will catch a fish on your first cast. And they just didn't, they think you're telling literally a fishtail. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, we had to put 25, 30 of them in the boat, you know, because you got to have a fish fry. And then, you know, so we had to do the same thing, although it was a shorter drive for me. So I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we understood all of that, but we're like, dude, it's sharks. Like sharks and rockfish. Like those are the two things that there is no need for stunfish for those. There guys. is no need. There <laughs> no, is no salmon. Need. Salmon. We, yeah, we would have to have it. We definitely get a stunfish. The, the hysterical, uh, the best story of that in that regard doesn't involve a fish, but it, something close, a turtle. We were down in South America, and uh, we were in the Amazon jungle, and so many bizarre species. We didn't have time to fit every animal in the show, and all we heard was screaming one morning and we go and one of the local fellows who was helping us had found this giant, what he called a mud turtle, but it was a species we, looking it up on our phones, we couldn't even tell what it was. And none of us were trying to be Charles Darwin, but here we have this rare exotic turtle species. And we asked them to our translator, what do you do with it? And yeah, the, oh, we boil it, we make turtle soup. And we're like, oh my God, there's another scene in the show, right? So Chris becomes obsessed with this turtle. And so we're on our way to a hunting camp with some members of this tribe, this group of first peoples that live in the jungle. And we're going to be back in a day and a half. And so we talked to them, can the turtle, can you keep the turtle for us until we get back to the village the day after tomorrow? And the guy's like, absolutely, 100%. And, you know, Chris says, great, you know, we'll take care of you. And, you know, we want to buy the turtle and you know, the gentleman's like, absolutely. And, we, you know, we shake hands and everything goes well. And then we come back from this hunt already having too many scenes for the show. I mean, we could have just stopped right there. But of course, the guy and the turtle are gone because he came home and his family was hungry. And he's like, well, they're eating the turtle. And he didn't really believe that we were coming back anyway. And then we show up because this folks are so off the grid. They have no concept. They'd never seen cameras or television or anything. They're protected tribal people in this country. And um, it was one of the most hysteric. Watching Chris go door to door trying to hunt for this turtle that was <laughs> never found was one of the great joys of my life. I just sat in the lawn chair and watched him get more and more worked up. <laughs> uh, run me to mention some snapping turtle next time I see him. I live on a pond. We just saw, I'll shoot you the picture. We have 40 pounders out here. And it's, that's the easiest catch in the world. And we take them apart and fry up. We dry the meat and fry it much as you would fried chicken, buttermilk, and then, you know, seasoned flour. And I just assume eat fried turtle that way is almost any other meat. It's delicious. But we put milk. I don't know how you do it. We take I mostly milk make jugs. soups out of them. 
Oh yeah, delicious for soup. We take milk jugs and seal them up, usually two or three. Oh, jug, rope around, jug line. Yeah, rope around it, a really big meat hook, a two-week-old pork chop on the <laughs> end of it. Just let it rot in a bag outside. Put it onto that hook, throw it into the pond, and it floats out there into the middle. And you wake up the next morning and you see the three milk jugs on the far side of the pond. And you walk around and you pull the line in. And at the end of it is your 40-pound snapper. They are monsters here in Minnesota. And uh, we just saw one on the trail the other day walking the dogs. The dogs, you know, were like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, that's nothing you want a piece of. You know, (laughs) they're called snapping turtles for a reason. Yeah. Well, one in the show we that I held up, you know, because you can hold up smaller ones by their tails as long as it's at complete arm's length. Mm -hmm. And as we were doing a still photo, it leaned down and bit through the metal chair of the uh, bass boat that we were on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those old bass boats that had an aluminum metal chair coated on both sides with foam. You know, those boat chairs Mm -hmm. from like the 60s. And it just bit right through eighth of an inch aluminum. I mean, right through it. And this was a small one, maybe 15, 18 pounds. Scary stuff. Yeah, it is. So before I let you go, you know, I've eaten a lot of different fish and seafood. And some of the things, some of the, you know, a lot of it sort of blends together. The last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was was sort of the highlights as opposed to the lowlights. And I just had snook for the first time. Mm. And I have to put snook in the bucket of some of the greatest fish and seafood I've ever eaten. Spot prawns are are especially special. Easy. The things that are, you know, there's a great sea of fish and seafood, so to speak. But there's going to be certain things that bounce out at you. Like snook is one. There's Uh, some that I'll literally never forget. Scamp scamp grouper is up there. Mm -hmm. You know, that spring run king salmon is definitely up there. I mean, I could probably go on, but it's a lot of fish and sell- shellfish for me. It's less, less, a little bit less bivalves, but I, you, yeah. you're, you're way more traveled than I am. And I'd be interested to see like, if there's like, oh, it's always places where only have pressure. X thing. Yeah. Yeah. So langoustine are something that by the time they get to any city have degraded, they just have, it's impossible. You can't really keep them alive. If you keep them in tanks, they get mushy. People have tried that in Las Vegas, charged a fortune, and they're good, but not great. And then I've been in certain Scandinavian countries where, you know, you're catching live and they're good, but they're not that big. And then I went to the Faroe Islands. The Faroe Islands are a group of islands. They are technically a protectorate of Denmark. Anyone who's in Scandinavia and does not spend the $49 for a two-way ticket on the little puddle jumper to the Faroe Islands and spend 48 hours there is missing one of the greatest travel experiences you will ever have. I can't think of a more, people say Iceland is beautiful. I don't think it's anything compared to the beauty of the Faroe Islands. It is just, it's indescribable with thousand foot cliffs and green turfed plateaus at the top of them and sky that's bluer than blue and clouds that are whiter than white. But the fish and seafood that come out of those waters, much like the fish and seafood that comes out of the Namibia off the skeleton coast, Mm. has so little pressure on it. And those are two of the spots in the world where the water is the coldest, the deepest, and the swiftest running. And we were on a langoustine boat, and the guy pulls up the first trap. And I'm not kidding you. They were the length of pound and a half 
Maine lobsters. Hmm. And the guy twists the tail off, cuts a little bit, puts the raw tail right into my mouth and says, taste that as he's shoving it in with his old calloused, crusty, blistered fisherman finger. And I've never tasted anything so delicious in my life. We went to his house that night where he cooked them up for us. And it was like an all you can eat sort of thing. They were so plump and so firm. And I've never tasted langoustine of that kind in the world. Now he sells his langoustine to four restaurants in the world. And you can probably guess what some of them are. Noma is probably one of them. However, Noma is one of them. However, he said to me in complete fairness, he says, we created a specialized box with tubes to hold them and, you know, wet newspaper the whole, and foam and this whole thing. He said, but by the time someone eats them, they're still three, four days out of the water. He said, you just can't get around it. And they're amazing, but they're not this amazing. He said, what, what you eat in my house is not replicatable anywhere else in the world and you'll never taste anything like it. And he was true. It sounds um, a lot like spot prawns. Absolutely. And having caught my own spot prawns, and by the way, again, like oysters, we hauled up a trap and then moved the boat 200 yards and pulled up another trap. They were a different color, tasted different, looked different. Sure I mean, they weren't like, coon stripes? Well, I said, this is, I got the education right then <laughs> and there because he held up the coons and he says, no, these are just, you know, from this one place, there's just so much plant life. This one place that we get them, they're always really dark and green, greenish brown colored. And once cooked, delicious and not that different tasting. Down in Namibia on the Skeleton Coast, there is, I mean, obviously the Namib Desert is there. It's one of the most dangerous places on planet Earth for humans to exist uh, because there are more poisonous animals in the Namib Desert than anywhere else in the world. Bugs, snakes, etc. And it's almost uninhabitable. And so the water on the other side, which by the way, is very, very dangerous, right? It's very much, it's near the Cape of uh, Good Hope, Good Horn, the bottom of Southern Africa. And the waters run very fast. The waters are very deep and the water is very cold. So all the fish and shellfish that comes out of there is, I mean, we were eating four-year-old oysters that were the size of small Frisbees. We were eating shrimp the size of my forearm. But most deliciously, and I love horse mackerel, I don't know about you, but in Japanese restaurants, you will pay a fortune for them, sometimes as much as $45 for a seven or eight ounce fish. And they were using them as bait to catch the other fish. And I said, you don't eat these? And even the locals were like, no, those are like garbage. Like, why would you eat that? That's how we catch the other fish. I'm like, because this fish is delicious. It tastes better than that other fish. So I cooked some and I ate some raw with them and they were not as persuaded as I was, but to gorge on horse mackerel down on the Namib coast was just, was unbelievable. There are certain spots in the world that have, I mean, look, in season to be in Lisbon at a restaurant like Ramiro when the first sardines of the year come in or the first local shrimp, and they just cook them in oil and garlic in a small little cazuela and bring them right to your table, shell on. There are places that it really is a second to none kind of experience. Uh, and I'm lucky that I've had so many. In the Philippines, down in some of the Southern islands there, places that are literally untouched, where 
that cliche of, you know, the kids dive in the water and will sell you whatever they come up with for dinner. And you can, for another dollar, they'll build a fire for you on the beach and cook it for you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like it in the world. All of that being said, I think it still comes down to the simple pleasure. And, you know, I'm going to have it in a couple of weekends when I head up north of, you know, catching a fish out of the lake with my friends, building a fire, roasting the fish whole, you know, on green sticks, leaned in over the fire with our fingers, just charred skin and perfectly cooked flesh. You can duplicate those feelings anywhere. That's, that's why the world of food and the camaraderie of sharing it with other people is brings so much joy and happiness. That's what they say. They say that, that the best trout's the one that you caught 10 minutes before. That's right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. People, you are on the series of tubes that we call the internet. Social media-wise, where are you most active? Where aren't I uh, most <laughs> active? Uh, Chef well, your, a, your, Chef sub, your sub stack is spilled milk, so follow that. Yep. And, uh, Chef AZ on Instagram, Andrew Chef Zimmern AZ. on Twitter. But if people go to andrewzimmern.com, everything just pops up right there and the links to everything and all things, you know, you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can see what we're up to. Uh, Navigation bar across the top takes you everywhere that I'm involved, including most importantly, our partners page. These are not people who pay us. These are charitable organizations we support with so much going on in the world. You know, these are organizations on whose boards I sit or who I support with my dollars And we like people to know where they should be turning their attention. So check out our partners page at andrewzimmer.com. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I hope to wet a line or chase chase God's creatures with you at some point. Um, Me too, my friend. You know where I live and I know where you live. So (laughs) when we're headed in one direction, we'll let each other know. (laughs) Exactly. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Well, that's our show this week. I'm your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by eFish and Filson. Thank you so much for spending some part of your day with us. As always, you can reach me at HuntGatherCook on Instagram. You can find me at HuntGatherCook.com on the internet. That is my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can read all about our interactions with food and nature and hunting and fishing essays at To The Bone. If you Google To The Bone and Substack, because that is the platform that it is on, you will find me and my partner in crime, Holly Heiser's interesting and cool and unusual essays that involve hunting and fishing and food and the interaction of us and nature. That's it for this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a good time out in the out of doors this next week or so, because this is now being the time where everything is pretty much going on in terms of the fishing world. June is an awesome month for that. So good luck, tight lines, and I will talk to you soon.